A wooden cart pulled by a poor old mare traveled down a road out of Newbury. It's a cool July day in Massachusetts, normal for this time of year. The old mare huffed as she pulled the cart up a small hill, her puffing breath loudly breaking the early summer air. A young woman sits in the cart with her aging father. Robert Smith is his name. They had been to the general store to pick up a letter. And while they were there, buy a new shovel and some nails for a new shed. The old father was rather happy in spite of his lingering bad health, recently having fought off a bout of dysentery. Robert had a steady, temperate life, faith in God, and his lucky horseshoe, which he has carried with him since he was a boy. This all comforted him on this cool July day while heading back to the farm after picking up the letter. He knew what the letter said, and so did his daughter, Mary Paul Smith. It is 1854, and next month, Mary Paul will be 17 years old. Robert had collected the folded letter, a sheet of paper folded and sealed with a wax seal, from the postmaster, who was also a storekeeper. This was common in the 1850s. That is how he bought a shovel, nails, and the letter. Robert paid five cents for the letter, as it was sent collect. In the 1850s, a folded letter could be, and often was, sent postage due, or collect. The letter had a large red five in the corner. If it was sent with a stamp, then it would have only been three cents, and probably been paid with a three-cent postage stamp with a picture of George Washington on it. Robert knew that he didn't have to accept the letter. Both he and Mary Paul knew what it said. But it was important, so he did pay the five cents. A lesser man may not have, Robert thought, but he was not that type of man. The cancel on the face of the letter was a clear red Rockport cancellation. Rockport is about 45 miles south. Mary Paul was going to be going to Rockport. There's a mill there that needs workers. It isn't Mary Paul who wants to go, but rather her father. He tells her the Rockport mill is safe. It will protect her virtue. And you will be well fed. The mill will give you a good place to live and a wage. Far better than what you can get here on the farm. Mary Paul expected this letter. Many of her friends had received the same letter and had the same conversation with their parents. It wasn't a surprise. She knew that all the local farmers were facing harsh competition and problems selling their crops due to the large farms springing up in the West. The growing scarcity of land in the very crowded New England countryside also meant a change in that potential suitors inheriting large enough farms to be profitable was remote. And her father being able to give a substantial land dowry was also remote. 
many of Mary Paul's friends had already sought other work at the urging of their parents. Mary Paul had seen the gleaners around the farm. Gleaners were people who collected leftover crops from the farmer's fields after they had been harvested. Or fields that just were not economically profitable to harvest. Something that was starting to occur quite often now. Her father didn't care about the gleaners. He saw it as his religious duty, a form of welfare. He was doing the Lord's work. Mary Paul didn't want to become a gleaner. This is Relics of History. This episode's music is from the 1854 song, Hard Times Come Again No More, by Stephen Foster, the composer shown on Scott's number 879, the one-cent stamp of the composer's set of the famous Americans issue of 1940. Depending on where you lived, your life in the 1850s could be very different. From being an actual slave on a Mississippi cotton plantation, to a photographer in Philadelphia, or a sailor in the Boston shipyard, or what we today would consider middle management, accountants plying their trade in New York office buildings. The range of labor in the 1850s was nearly as diverse as it is today. In fact, many of the businesses and jobs we see today started with the technology of the 1850s. These include the accountants, the marketing people, the banking and the bank transactions we see every day now. Even advertising with celebrities endorsing a particular brand of soap or a new medicine, which probably didn't work. This is the period in which Mary Paul was having her conversation with her father on that Massachusetts road in 1854. The Industrial Revolution had a profound impact on the world. With all the criticism of abuse of the growth of industrialization and the pollution and the dislocation, the fact is that today, because of the revolution, we live longer, healthier, and happier lives than Mary Paul and her father. At the beginning of the 1800s, most American families lived in candlelit homes with bare wood floors, or even dirt floors, and unadorned walls. They cooked and warmed themselves by wood-burning fireplaces, and owned very few things. 
The Industrial Revolution had a profound impact on the world. With all the criticism of abuses and growth in industrialization, and the pollution and the dislocation, the fact is that today, because of the Industrial Revolution, we live longer, healthier, and happier lives than Mary Paul and her father. Everything in their house, they either made themselves or traded locally. Any manufactured goods were made by hand and were usually scarce and fairly expensive. The Industrial Revolution changed everything and brought fantastic luxury goods undreamed of in the past. And the old luxury goods of the past, well, they were now the bare necessities. Now all but the very poor could afford rooms that were lit by oil lamps, which gave off brighter light than candles and were much cheaper. Iron cook stoves, which made it possible to prepare more elaborate meals and the improvements in transportation brought more food items to the table. Many people could now afford carpets and upholstered furniture, and even the poorest farmers could decorate their houses with curtains and wallpaper. In America, the Industrial Revolution began in New England, where wealthy merchants built new textile mills, as well as the towns around them to support them. These mills introduced new modes of production. This production relied on water power and later steam power to provide the energy needed to drive the machines of this revolution. In addition to the machines, the specialization of work in the mills, often repetitive tasks, were given to wage-earning laborers. In return for their labor, workers like Mary Paul and thousands of other young women like her from rural New England farms, received employment and wages. The operations of these new factories and mills changed the very nature of work by de-skilling tasks, breaking down the process of production to its most basic parts, which removed the need for long apprenticeships. So what was Mary Paul's work like? Mary Paul was an average worker at the mill. She lived in a company-owned boarding house for which she paid a portion of her wages. She would have woke early in the morning at the sound of a bell and worked a 12-hour day during which talking was forbidden. They could not swear or drink alcohol and they were required to attend church on Sundays. Overseers at the mills and boarding house keepers kept a close eye on the young lady's behavior. Workers who were associating with people of questionable reputation or acting in a way that called their virtue into question lost their jobs and were evicted. On the other hand, men tended to work in factories. Work in factories provided a different experience. Workers were expected to work at a certain time, usually early in the morning, and to work all day. They could not leave when they were tired or take breaks other than at the designated times. Those who arrived late found their pay docked. 
Five minutes of tardiness could result in several hours worth of lost pay, and repeated tardiness could result in dismissal. The repetitive tasks must have made days seem particularly long. Hours varied according to the factory, but most factory employees worked 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week. In both the mills and the factories, in the winter, when the sun set early, oil lamps were used to light and workers strained their eyes to see what they were working on and coughed as the rooms filled with the smoke from the lamps. In the spring, as the days began to grow, workers held blowout celebrations to mark the extinguishing of the oil lamps. These blowouts were often large events and are where the phrase came from. So as a mill worker, Mary Paul would have earned about 30 cents a day, making $1.80 a week. Of this, she would have paid about $1.20 for her room and board, giving her a net of 60 cents a week, of which she would have sent half to her father until he passed in 1855. So if an average worker in the 1850s earned about 30 cents for a 10-hour day, given today's average wage is about $22 an hour, a three-cent postage stamp costs a little less than an hour of work, or about $18, versus the current 55 cents. That letter sent postage due, or collect as it was called, was a rather large amount of money for Mary Paul's father, being about $30 in today's money. Robert was a poor farmer and made about 80 to 90 cents a week, half of what the mill workers earned. Some other expenses of interest are that in 1850s, a person would spend about two-thirds of their income on food and drink. Today, as a comparison, the average worker spends only about one-fifth or 20% of their money on food. Housing in the 1850s, though, was much cheaper. If you didn't live in the company boarding house, it was a little less than 10% of your income. Today, we pay about one-third of our income on housing. A person would expect to spend about 15% of their income on clothes. Today, we spend only about 5%, one-third of what Mary Paul would have spent. But what about the rest of life in the 1850s? Author Carl Bode, in his Mid-Century America, Life in the 1850s, wrote... If you were an average American, and nobody ever is, living in the 1850s, you would, I think, be worse off physically and better off mentally than you are today. This is a paradox and an unprovable one, the sort that historians love to leap on with a yell. Yet a careful investigation of this interesting decade, a close look at its documents and artifacts, its gaudy mementos and odd paraphernalia leads pretty sure to that conclusion. You would be smaller and sicklier, but also more sanguine, 
you would probably be more superstitious and more ignorant. It is certain that you would be smaller. Men's clothing, as has survived, looks shrunk to us. So does women's. The Smithsonian Institute has an exhibit on gowns worn by presidents' wives. And the further you go back in time, the smaller the gowns get. You would be sicklier since disease would be stalking you often. The deadliest of ills you would be exposed to would be tuberculosis, diphtheria, and typhoid. If you became a parent in the 1850s in Massachusetts, your baby had a life expectancy of about 40 years. The top killers of the 1850s was, in order of deaths, tuberculosis, dysentery, cholera, malaria, typhoid fever, pneumonia, diphtheria, scarlet fever, meningitis, and whooping cough. Today, not a single one of these causes is in the top 10 in the United States, though tuberculosis is still a problem worldwide. Still, you would feel more sanguine than you would today. Though few of us learn to take disease and death for granted, you would learn to live with them, as we have learned to live with the hydrogen bomb. In fact, you would expect your children to catch certain diseases and be troubled if they did not. You would feel more secure in the present and more optimistic because the future of both your country and your people had been one of spectacular progress. Robert Smith, Mary Paul's father, died a few months after Mary Paul started work at the Rockport Mill. Over his life, Robert had survived malaria, typhoid fever, pneumonia, and his most recent bout with dysentery. But in the end, he was taken by a runaway horse pulling a wagon load of coal. Mary Paul worked at the Rockport Mill for 10 years. After the war, at the age of 27, Mary Paul married the son of the mill's boarding house manager. His name was Isaac. After her marriage, Mary Paul partnered with another seamstress from the Rockport Mill to make coats. They moved their coat business to Baltimore, where Isaac worked as a clerk at the Baltimore Post Office. Mary Paul and Isaac raised two daughters, who also worked in producing coats in their Baltimore business. 